No, you know, I think I've just been fascinated with any kind of doomsday literature, um, whether it's Philip K. Dick or Kurt Vonnegut, even film noir literature, Raymond Chandler. But, you know, growing up, I think everyone has an obsession with the end of the world, and and we are obviously confronted by a lot of issues right now that present it to us in, in very bold-faced type. Uh, you read the paper every day, so I think it's it's on the tip of everyone's tongue, and I think it's... It seems like worthy of discussion right now, and I guess I wanted to get this film out of my system, A, before I got too old, and B, before the world actually does end, it is too late to make it. <laughs> <laughs> fans welcome to a brand new episode of not a bomb podcast this is the show where we go back and revisit the movies that bombed in the theaters and also the ones that the critics really didn't take a liking to i'm one of your hosts troy and with me is my partner in crime brad hey brad how are you i'm doing great man happy mother's day to all the mothers listening out there and to your wife and and to mine yeah i i I hope you got a nice uh, peaceful relaxing day and uh, got to celebrate, um, I guess, your mom and Natalie and everything else. I mean, we we actually had a very low-key Sunday, and we haven't had one of those in a long time. Yeah, that's kind of our flavor, too. Like, doing nothing is golden around here, so we always capitalize when we can. So, Well, and, and we had to, you know, we're saving all the energy for this show tonight, right? It, it's a doozy. It is a doozy. Um, I will say... That uh, just as a kind of self-indulgent sort of deal, our podcast had like the best week ever last week. So people who are new to the podcast, thank you for listening. Thank you for jumping aboard. Like Troy said, kind of the thesis of this podcast is reevaluating films that bombed at the box office or critics uh, did not like or both. Um, I did have someone reach out to me on Twitter and said, Hey, it would be nice if you guys didn't take an hour, hour and a half to actually review a movie. And <laughs> I, I don't consider us like a film review podcast. Do you in a way? Uh, not really. I, I think we've always been fascinated with how things happen, especially with the movies that we're talking about. So I know a yeah. good chunk of this is to go back through the box office, what was going on with maybe the people making the film or uh, starring in it, like what, what, what was happening at the time that this thing got released that made it bomb more or less because that, that's, that's what interests me. I mean, and and trust me, there are a lot of great podcasts out there that probably do a better job of reviewing movies than I think we do. I mean, the whole idea of this is to, to really, like you said, go back and give these things a second chance. And, and let's be honest, we are pretty different in our views. So what you consider a bomb versus what I consider a bomb, a, a lot of times it's going to be different. Yeah. Uh, our Venn diagram has like a lot that like kind of, you know, intersects with each other, but yeah. then there's like these pockets where we're completely different. So it's funny that, uh, you know, like Argento, like 
you love every Argento film and I can't stand <laughs> any Argento well, film. Not every so, uh, Argento film. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there, there's um, a certain period where it just drops off and they, they become terrible, but uh, yes, no. And, and full disclosure too, uh, we started um, with also having sort of a, um, I don't know, a setup where you are picking really the episodes that are odd numbers and I get the even number one. So it, the whole idea is, we are not torturing each other, although this week <laughs> I think you would disagree with that. But we're trying to pick things that maybe we haven't seen before or maybe are some of our favorite films and we can't figure out why they bombed. Uh, or, you know, there, there's a whole list of films I know, Brad, that I know you haven't seen and I know there are bombs or personal favorites of mine. And I use this as an opportunity to introduce you to them and sort of get your take on it. Yeah, and I introduced you to Solar Babies, so I think we're even. Yeah, I think so. So <laughs> I, th I think I'm going to make up this week for Solar Babies. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But what, what, what are we talking about this week, Brad? We are talking about uh, 2007, maybe 2006 as well. Uh, but 2007's um, Southland Tales, directed by Donnie Darko's own Richard Kelly. Yeah, there, there are a couple of dates thrown around. So it had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 2006, and it was a bit of an unfinished product, actually. It got picked up by Sony at that point, and it got a formal theatrical release in 2007 as a finished product. So you'll see a couple of dates pop up. And primarily, again, if you go to IMDb or something like that, it listed as a 2006 because that's when it was actually first shown to the public. But it really didn't hit theaters till 2007, and, and it made a lot of lists um, for 2007, too, which we'll talk about here shortly. But, um, you know, but before we get into that, I, I guess I, I'm always curious, Brad, your, is your favorite genre science fiction? Is, is that yes. fair? Yeah. Okay. Yes. What is it about science fiction that is, I guess, from a genre perspective, why is that sort of the group of movies you you like to go to out of all the other ones that are out there? That's a good question. I think it happens to be like the, usually it's the subject matter. Um, you know, you take something like Blade Runner and you're looking at the future and looking how society has changed. You're giving a lot of social commentary. Um, I always like the tech is another thing. Um, and then kind of a lot of times, uh, like City of Darkness, um, no, Dark City, I'm sorry. Dark City, you know, it's got that weird kind of style to it. I think it's another thing, very visual. Um, the science fiction's like, can be very visual and be very stunning. You know, sometimes you have like Art Deco that like is kind of um, contrasts that with like future tech and stuff. So just you get a wide gamut of, of, of subject matter visual styles. Um, I mean, you could do anything with science fiction. You could, you know, do horror, you can do comedy. There's just so many things that you can kind of do a subgenre in under the umbrella of science fiction that I think that's what I dig most about it. Um, and most of my film favorite films just happen to be science fiction. Um, I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. It's like, why do you like your, why do you like your firstborn child the most? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm just always curious because yeah. th this is a, I think you kind of nailed it. This genre has so many different channels that can go down between horror, um, action. I mean, it, 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 science fiction has always been super interesting to me. 
And I, and I gotta be honest, it's one of those that as a kid, I gravitated to myself, but I almost had a second resurgence of it, especially in high school or college, when you start picking out the science fiction films that have a lot of social commentary or politics to it. And, yeah, and I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you have a preference? Do you, do you want your, do you want your science fiction to be sort of politics or, or commentary free and just to, to, you know, take you to a, a far off distant world? Or do you really, you know, kind of relish those films that, that I don't know, are, are trying to say something or, or even I, criticize? I think it's hard to like world build without having that political element um, you know, cause it's such a big, if you and I were to make a movie about society today, negating, talking about any sort of politics would be sort of a disservice to the movie we're making. Cause it's such a big deal. So to kind of shy away from that stuff doesn't make it feel as genuine. Yeah. I, I like a mix. I, I'll be honest. I, I know we just talked about star Wars last week and some folks get a little upset when you talk about, you know, a major film franchise like that. And especially when they, hey, we survived it, we did we survived it. And people actually were like, wow, we're so glad you did that movie. We love that movie. Like the outpouring of support for solo, uh, after doing that podcast was kind of surreal. Yeah. And it shocked me because I know one of the topics we talked about was, you know, the people that were making the film and the Star Wars franchise and and those people that are uh, sort of, I don't know, leading the company, making decisions. And, you know, it, like you said, I, I had some people reach out too, and we had good discussions about, hey, I like your take on Solo. Um, not exactly 100% behind you on some of the Kathleen Kennedy stuff, because I don't like the choices that she makes here, here and here. And I totally get that. So it, it, was really surprising because I, I would be the first to say when you go down um, something as beloved as Star Wars and you might say something contrarian to even what the internet might think about some things, uh, you you always kind of get scared about the backlash of things. And Richard Kelly is a good example too. The guy's only made like three films and he has a very rabid fan base, uh, especially with um, Donnie Darko. And we'll get to talk about that shortly, but just real quick, but before we get to talk about this film, cause I've, I've always been curious about your love of science fiction. I know, um, probably Blade Runners is, is that your favorite? Yeah. Blade Runner is my favorite. Uh, the matrix is up there really high as well. Um, and then something like Metropolis, I mentioned like dark cities, another one. Akira, we did that. right? Yeah. Akira, um, goes to the shell things that are, I, I don't know. Some of those are really weird, um, but they also say a lot. But you can also kind of find the themes pretty easily. And uh, I guess that's one of the other big things I like about science fiction is like the themes they tackle. Uh, what is it to be human? A lot of times is kind of the overall theme to a lot of those uh, of my favorites. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tonight, we're talking about a film that I think you might label science fiction. I don't know what you would label it. it it's film noir. It's science fiction. It's everything in the kitchen sink, I think. Are, are, are you familiar with the term pop art Yes. cinema? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, like Spring Breakers is one. Um, you know, uh, what's the, who's the, uh, Harmony Corinne? Yes. I guess like most of his films are what you would call like pop art cinema. I think I would label Southland Tales like pop art adjacent. Maybe it's it's weird. I, I think when yeah. we get into talking about it, I, I'm with you. It might be pop art cinema or even performance art to a certain degree. 
Okay. Yeah. So uh, it it is a very interesting film. So the the reason why I wanted to kind of start and preface, I guess, your thoughts and views on science fiction is there. Just full disclosure: all week, Brad has been sending me text messages uh, about this film, and they are just not suitable for work text messages. So it, I, I picked one that um, I know you've seen before, Brad. I've seen it before. I was super excited this year when I think it was Arrow was putting out a special edition of the film, and it was going to contain the uh, the the Cannes Film Festival cut, which was longer versus the theatrical cut. And we'll kind of talk about the history of the making of the film. And it's Richard Kelly, I think, is a divisive director. And I think he'll show up on the show a couple of more times because when when we get into talking about his history, the guy really hasn't made a theatrical hit. Now his films gain a cult following after release, but man, when they put those things in the wild, he he just doesn't resonate with audiences whatsoever. But when we start sharing, um, I guess the the thoughts on the film, I I really think it's important for you know people. It I think sometimes when you go after a film and you start really being critical of it and kind of taking notice of, hey, I don't like this, this doesn't work for me, et cetera. I think a lot of people can come at you and say, well, you just don't understand that genre, or you don't understand that filmmaker, or you you don't have the context or what's going on from this perspective. And I know there are a lot of people that love this film that actually listen to our podcast. And I, I kind of want to make a full preface that of any criticism that comes out by you or me, I, I want I want there to be a clear disclaimer that we love our science fiction and we we like our science fiction also with our political and social commentary. I mean that the meat in in those type of narratives um, really excite me more so than just you know oh pretty lasers and spaceships and space battles and yeah. space wizards. Right? And, and I would say I think I and I went back and rewatched Donnie Darko because of the 4K edition, and I. Think Donnie Darko is still a really fun, cool, dark science fiction film. I did not get back to watching The Box, but I have seen that before. But you know, I think Donnie Darko is a really cool film. Um, it came out in like a real important time for me, and like I went off to college like when that <laughs> film was like in every dorm room. Yeah. Every person that I knew had ten films. Donnie Darko was in that ten films. Everyone, everyone I knew. I, I believe that. I believe it. It it was. It had a. Um, I went to college in '02, so it was like the year after. Yeah, I, it it had a big thud when it came out in the theaters, but it was one of those films that it just gained a lot of notoriety sort of after its theatrical release. So let's let's talk about this one, and and we're specifically going to talk about Southland Tales. I mean, we'll we'll probably talk about the box and Donnie Darko in detail, but let let's go back in time and let's talk about 2006 or 2007. And Brad, this was, would you, would you consider like a pretty highly anticipated follow-up, like sophomore effort? Everybody was really looking forward to this thing, right? Yes. Yeah. I was, I would say this is one of those films where you were kind of feeling like this guy could be the next Tarantino or like independent, sort of like Kevin Smith, where they have this independent film. It gets a bunch of groundswell. And then their next film, you know, he waits five years and it's going to be this, you know, kind of take after 9-11 anxiety, things like that. 
and people are kind of frothing at the mouth, if you will. Yeah, it, that's that's a good way to say it because even Hollywood after Donnie Darko, even though it didn't do so hot in the theaters, everybody was kind of going after him from a director standpoint and wanted wanted him to work on other projects, so other screenplays that you know studios et cetera have. But let's let's talk about when this thing came out. So you want to you want to go through the numbers in the background on that one? Yeah, so we kind of mentioned it. Um, Donnie Darko was screened at Cannes at uh, May twenty first, two thousand six. Kind of takes a little time, gets rejiggered a little bit, um, gets a, I'll say a limited release um, in November of 2007. Um, it opens to 63 screens, so it's not huge. So, box office <laughs> budget $17 million. Budget. Budget. Yes. Box office, a grand total of, and I had to write a K for this one because that means. Thousands, three hundred and seventy-four thousand dollars. Wow! Fails to even make half a million dollars. Um, opening weekend, um, it comes in thirty-third place. Now again, sixty-three screens, but thirty-third place makes a hundred and seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I will say of that seventeen say, million, right? Uh, I I want to say th- this is one of those where it had an initial budget. It goes to the uh, con film festival. I think Sony picks it up and then invests another million into it. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was like 15, 16, and then they kind of had to re-edit it, things like that. Sony backs it, throws in a million dollars of their money that they literally should have just lit on fire, I guess. <laughs> um, in 2007, there was the, uh, final cut re-release of Blade Runner as well. I didn't wow. remember that in the theater. So, um, speaking of what was in the theater, in November of 2007, which you usually say, Oh, I saw all these. This was in my prime going to the theater days. So I saw a lot of these. Okay. Uh, we have American gangster. Okay. Which I saw, of course it's Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. We have Beowulf. Yeah. The, uh, pseudo CGI. Well, it was, it was CGI. an animated film, but it was, it was, it wasn't rotoscope. Was it? It was, it was no, something it was, else. It was none of those motion capture Robert? something. Was that Roland Emmerich or what? No, it's uh, Back to the Future guy. Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis. Yeah, yeah. it's a Zemeckis. Angelina Jolie was in it. It's very like, tries to be mature, but it's PG-13. So um, anyway, No Country for Old Men. Amazing movie. Amazing movie. Uh, P2, which is that parking lot movie. Oh, yeah, which, the horror film. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think I've ever uh, seen that. That Mr. Morganum's uh, One Room Emporium. Never saw that. <laughs> Heath Ledger, that's actually Heath Ledger's last film. Right. Because um, that comes after The Dark Knight. P.S. I Love You, which are our Butler, Enchanted, Hitman, August Rush, uh, Stephen King's The Mist, In the Name of the King, a, dra- a Dungeon Siege Tale. Jason Statham and Burt Reynolds. Yes. <laughs> that movie is god awful. That, that's um, another two and a half hour. That's like a long one, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's about it. But you, I, I think isn't 2007 considered to be one of the best film years of all time because you have no country and you have there will be blood. Um, so I know that uh, those two. They were duking it out at the Academy Awards. Yes, yes. Yes. I was always on the there will be blood side. I like uh, no country, but give me there will be blood any day of the week. Well, for anyone who cares. OK. 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 Here we go. Yes. Are, are we talking critics? We're talking critics. Okay. 
All right, we're looking at 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I find to be shocking. And the audience score of, of over 21 or 25,000 reviews, we're looking at 41%. You say this film is pretty divisive. P.S. Do you say divisive or divisive? I usually say divisive, but okay. I, okay. Is there a proper people, way to say? It? But why I, are I you asking know. me? I'm the guy that can't say like a first or last name correctly. You can't say anything. I'm, I can't uh, master the English language to save my life. So, <laughs> if only you had an English degree. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, you know the Southland Tales, while offering an intriguing vision of the future remains frustratingly incoherent and unpolished. Who said that one? Uh, that was the consensus. Oh, the consensus. I, I know Roger Ebert. Wrote, Roger Ebert does not like this film. Yeah, he wrote a pretty, I don't know, scathing review of it uh, after seeing it at the Cannes Film Festival. And I probably my favorite story is uh, Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson was... Not in this film. Not in this film. Yeah, this yeah. is the first film where he dropped The Rock. So he was sitting down to talk about uh, a film. I, I think it was about the time when fighting with my family was coming out because I think he's a producer has a, uh, a, a small like last year or the year before that. Yeah. And, and people are asking about this and somebody, he, he said that uh, the first, cause they're doing the press and everything at the con film festival. So um, Dwayne Johnson sits down, Southland Tales just finishes and people, you know, reporters, everything else are, are coming up to him and they want to talk to him about the film. And I guess the very first reporter sat down and he goes, I have never seen so many people walk out of a film before. <laughs> and didn't they openly boo at the camp film festival? They like booed pretty badly during the screening i believe yeah there's some there's some cool stories i guess um <laughs> some cool stories there are i mean one one of the one of the things i found about it uh was it scored the lowest reviews for the 2006 um con film festival uh averaging 1.1 out of five in all the dailies but then richard kelly was a palm de or nominee for the film which is kind of weird given the film scores so the, yeah. the way the story goes is he was still working on the movie when they approached him about showing it and, and he sent a copy um, sort of of what the film looked like now, uh, just assuming that they would go, we don't know what this is. It, it's an unfinished product, but they got excited and wanted him to show it there. And it, it was a disastrous showing. So uh, that, that went down and, and pretty much scarred, I think everybody that was involved in it, but Sony came around and said, we like it. We're going to, we're going to buy it. Uh, distribution rights, and then sink another million dollars for visual effects in order to get to a finished product. But they also told him he had to, they had to cut it down. What is the 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 can edition? How what's the runtime on that? Um, I I want to say it was oh my gosh, uh, 160 minutes I think. So oh yeah, I thought it was like 240 or something, 245. Yeah. And, and which version did you watch? You watched the theatrical or the, yeah, just the theatrical. Okay. I watched it the was longer 221, cut. I think. Yeah. yeah I, I watched the longer cut on the uh, arrow Blu-ray, which side note, regardless of what you think about that film, I, I mean, arrow criterion. I, I love the fact that they're giving so much attention to these films and the fact that you can get like, you know, really a, a director's version or, or see what, you know, everybody else saw in 2006, then turn around and get the theatrical. And then they have a fantastic retrospective on it. So any of the I features, mean, this film, this film made three hundred and seventy-four million dollars or thousand dollars at the box office, 
and they're doing all this work to a film that literally no one saw when it was in the theater. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's pretty cool. Well, let, let's talk about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera. And we start with Richard Kelly. So we, we talked a little bit about his films. I think you and I are both big fans of Donnie Darko, right? Yeah, it was um, a phenomenon when I was 18 to 20. I mean, everyone loved that movie and was like dissecting everything about it. Um, and we honestly thought this guy was going to be in our lives making movies for the rest of our lives. I mean, we just thought, oh, this guy's going to be around forever. Did you see it theatrically when it came out? I did not. I did not. I didn't see it until we had, you know, hey, let's go rent a movie or something like that. And we knew a guy who worked at Blockbuster and he was like, you have to watch this. And of course we got it for free. So, you know, we were like, okay, whatever. And we took it home and we were like, I've never seen anything like this before. Who's this Jake Gyllenhaal guy? Who's this Richard Kelly guy? Uh, you know, everything about it was just so weird. And, it, you know, you're like, what are these numbers and all this stuff. So it just, it, it blew us away. Yeah. Well, I, I ended up seeing it. I want to say, probably on a third run. The first time I ever saw it was in the theaters. So it wasn't part of its initial theatrical run, but it's like six, seven months afterwards and it's touring. Right. And Tabitha and I went to go see it. She hates that film. I absolutely love it because it's so weird and you know, you can do multiple viewings and get something out of it. And it's, it's fun to kind of unpack it. Right. But when Donnie Darko came out, it, it was one of those films that, you know, everybody passed it finally got made. It was made on a $6 million budget. It only made 1.4 million in the U S when it came out and ultimately only 6.9 million worldwide. So Donnie Darko made way more than Southland tales, but still is considered a bomb for its theatrical run because I, I mean, I doubt there was a whole lot of advertising to it, but when you squeeze just almost the, the box office total equals what your budget is, that's not a good sign at all. And, and then did he, you see the did you see the uh, take from DVD sales alone though? Yeah, uh, I didn't see the DVD sales, but that's where it really took off. Do you have those numbers? So it was ten million just by DVD alone. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and as many times as that has been re-released uh, with special editions. So you you recently bought the four K version, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so five years later, we get Southland Tales in 2006, uh, theatrical release in 2007. Well, that's the movie you were talking about tonight. And then three years later, he does a film with Cameron Diaz called The Box, and that comes out in 2009. It has a $30 million budget, so it's, it's you know, the biggest budget he'd worked on. It only made $15 million in the U.S. and $33 million worldwide. So he's done three films. He's had two two shorts that he did before, um, you know, his, his debut at Donnie Darko, but so far he's only made three films and each one of them have been box office poison more or less just haven't done well at all. Now, Donnie Darko is the one that everybody goes to Southland tales, I think has a little bit of a cult following. I don't hear anybody talk about the box at all. Yeah. It's weird. Cause you know, that was the biggest, the biggest budget for him. Um, it's got the biggest stars in it at the time. Yeah, I, I think it's weird that people kind of don't really talk about that movie. But I, sometimes I think a director, I don't know, it doesn't feel as Richard Kelly as the other two films, to me at least. As much as I remember the box, just it doesn't feel like 
Donnie Darko or Southland Tales. Well, to me, to be, I could be wrong. No, to be honest, I had so this this Blu-ray has been sitting on my shelf, the box. Of course it has. Of course it has in the watch pile. And when I started going through the Richard Kelly filmography and that film pops up, I'm like, holy cow, I've never seen that. So I, I bought it and I I always forget that Richard Kelly directed it. So I actually watched it this weekend and, and was pleasantly surprised. I, I think it actually fits just perfectly within the Donnie Darko Southland Tales. I, I, I think he is still tackling a lot of the same stuff. And and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was a, a really good film. I know you, um, our good friend Sammy from the Gentleman's Guide uh, to Midnight Cinema, were talking about it this week, and and he's a fan of that of that movie too. So, I, I again, it's one of those when you talk about Richard Kelly, that movie never comes up. And quite honestly, I I totally forgot that he directed it. So I, I corrected that and, and watched it this weekend, and it was really good. Um, he's also known as a writer. So all the films that he directed, he also wrote the screenplays to. So he did Donnie Darko. He did Southland Tales and The Box. A couple of the writing credits show up as well. In 2005, um, he had a screenplay credit for Domino with Kieran Oh, the Knightley, Tony Scott film. Yeah. yeah. Which bombed as well. Yeah. And um, there was a sequel to Donnie Darko called S. Darko done in 2009 that he was credited for characters. Did you ever see that one? I did. I, did. I saw that at it? one of the horror hounds and it is atrocious. Oh, okay. That bad. It's really bad. Yeah. Really bad. Um, I guess he had to sell the rights to Sony when they gave him money. Cause he had nothing to do with that except for characters. Right. Um, yeah. He didn't he do the screenplay or disowned that it. movie. Well, he said he's never seen it and he's not going to just because, and I understand like a, a film that you create and then kind of the characters, from that film or made into another film that you have zero control over. I would not see it either. I, I think that's not like out of the ordinary, but yeah, he hasn't seen it and doesn't really care for the idea that it's out there. So yeah. And, and he has a production company cause I've always wondered, I mean, what's he been doing since 2009, his production company has been putting movies out. I, I don't know if you ever saw like that Jason Bateman film, bad words that was uh, came out a few years ago. That's his production company. Okay. Okay. Um, so he's done some of the Bobcat Goldthwait films uh, that he directed as well. All so right. it's it, he's he runs as an independent film producer as well. Um, the cinematographer on this is the same cin- cinematographer for The Box and Donnie Darko. It's Stephen Poster. So they have worked um, together on on each of the films. The music, I, I totally forgot about this, but the 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 score is done by Moby. Are you a big Moby? Moby fan? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Moby's fine. Okay. So that's, uh, those are the ones, I mean, really, if you're talking about behind the the camera, it's Richard Kelly. I mean, th- this is Richard Kelly through and through, right? So in front of the camera, oh my goodness, when you talk about a cast, Southland Tales has a cast um, that is very similar to Coneheads, I think, which was the second film that we ever talked about on this podcast, but it, it's littered with a lot of SNL alumni Plus for 2006, 2007, I, I would say some pretty big stars. So we start with Dwayne Johnson. So th- as we said before, this was the first movie where he dropped the rock from his uh, billing or, or credit. And leading up to this, he, he wasn't the, the Dwayne Johnson we have today for Fast and Furious and Jumanji, et cetera. But he was doing some interesting stuff leading up to there. 2003 is the rundown. 
So he had I worked, like the rundown. <laughs> I, the rundown is fantastic. It's one of the best action films in the early 2000s. Christopher Walken, Sean William Scott, um, Rosario Dawson's in it. Yeah. Uh, it's so much fun. It's it's one of those films that anytime it's on, I'm going to watch it. I, I love it so much. Um, he follows that up with Be Cool, which was the sequel to Get Shorty. Get Shorty, yeah. Yep. He does uh, Doom in 2005 as well. So Be Cool and Doom come out in 2005. Then in, in 2006, he has two films come out. One is Southland Tales, and then the other one is Gridiron Gang. So his his career is starting to take off, and he's transitioning formally from the wrestling world and into the acting world. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. I, I, I obviously yes. love go ahead. Go yes, ahead. Buffy. Go ahead. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, greatest uh, TV show out there, plays Krista now in uh, this film. And, and same kind of thing. Buffy had just ended in 2003, she was, was it that long? Yeah, wow, I forgot 1996 that it was to 2003. Yeah, so um, she had done Scooby Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed in 2004, uh, The Grudge in 2004. So, you know, she's she's pulling a pretty good paycheck for the studios at this point. Yeah, and in 2006, actually did three films uh, Southland Tales, The Grudge 2, which I think she has a bit part in, and uh, The Return. Then we get Sean William Scott, Stifler himself, right? So he plays uh, Roland Taverner and Ronald Taverner, the the identical twin brothers. A- again, 2003 does the, yeah, <laughs> 2003 does the rundown. He did uh, in 2005 Dukes of Hazard. Did you ever see that? Oh my god, that movie! Oh, so bad. Really, oh, I, I kind of I kind of enjoy it. I kind of enjoy it. So why? What, what are you shaking your head for? It's just, oh, God, come on, Troy. Oh, you come on. So he, he does Dukes of Hazard Again, he has a couple of films come out uh, in 2006, Southland Tales and uh, Ice Age, The Meltdown. I forgot he did voice work for those films. Who's he in Ice Age, The Meltdown? Uh, I didn't write that okay. down, but okay. apparently he did the video game, the movie that year, all the shorts and stuff that came out for Ice Age, so I'm sure. Um, <laughs> here's, here's where the cat... So, you you would probably say that I mean the leads are Dwayne Johnson, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Sean William Scott, right? Th- yeah. Those are the three main ones. Absolutely, yes. Yes. So here's where the cast gets really interesting. You get Justin Timberlake as Private Pilot Abilene. Now he is transitioning from the music scene into acting. And in 2006, this was crazy to me. He did Alpha Dog, Southland Tales, and Black Snake Moan. I forgot he was in Black Snake Moan. Yeah, I, I did too. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, this is this is where it gets super crazy. So you get, um, it, it, do you say it as uh, Sherry O'Terry? Is that how yeah. she said? Okay, so Sherry yes. O'Terry as Zora, Nora Dunn, Janine Garofalo, Christopher Lambert, um, John, <laughs> yeah, Raiden himself, Raiden himself, John Larroquette. So if anybody knows him from eighties TV, he's in night court. That's probably the, the, I, I guess the big show or, or the big thing, you know, him from you, you get Biling, uh, John Lovitz, Mandy Moore, Amy Poehler, Zelda Rubinstein. So the, the, uh, paranormal investigator from poltergeist, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Wallace Shawn, Holmes Osborne, Curtis Armstrong, Booger himself from from Revenge of the Nerds, and Kevin Smith has a role in this. What, what do you think about that cast? I mean, the cast sounds awesome. 
to be honest. I mean, and that's kind of, I agree. The cast is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And obviously I think there's a point with that. You're getting all these comedians, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of casting against type. Um, Oh yes. Kind of kind of a huge point. So, yeah. And again, I, I remember when this came out and seeing the trailer and seeing that cast, the cast kind of blew my mind because I did not expect this cast in that type of film. I'm surprised they got everyone and they made a movie for $17 million. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. Um, So a little bit of, I don't know, trivia about this is that Richard Kelly, he, he talks about this film a lot. He, he calls it sort of an unfinished uh, project for him. He he talks about the influences. And I, I, I when I read this. Oh, you're going to do it, aren't you? I, I am because I, I really want to get your reaction to this. So Richard Kelly says the biggest influences for his film are Kiss Me Deadly from 1955, which I believe we've talked about before when we had our old podcast, the movie yes. down, right? Yep. And, yep. and you and I are huge film noir fans. So uh Pulp Fiction, 1994. Yes. There you go. So he loves Pulp Fiction. Uh, Brazil, 1985, which I know is another one of your favorites, right? Yes, which I think it's coming up. Is like four episodes from now, so stay tuned. Yeah, and uh, Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So you you want to do you do you have a list of films where everybody's like just assumes you've seen something and it, and it's such a classic. And but for you, it's a list of shame. You have your list? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everyone has their list. And okay. oh, okay. Okay. So what? I'm glad you mentioned this because I meant to say this earlier, but I've been spending a little bit more time on Twitter because I'm trying to be a little bit more active with our Twitter accounts and interacting with people and promoting other people's podcasts, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of this conversation started coming up about what's it mean to be a cinephile and someone. I guess there was a shutter film the other night and people were saying, Oh, I've never seen this before. And then people were like, well, how can you call yourself a cinephile if you haven't seen this and that? And this like gatekeeping stuff really rubs me the wrong way. Like if someone says they're a fan of film, they're a fan of films. Like you don't have to see everything. Like I, I don't understand this sort of gatekeeping on, you know, I know you see, you've seen thousands of films, but there's still films you haven't seen because a, you know what you like and you'll rewatch a film hundreds of times and you're trying to also see new stuff. It's just impossible to see everything. So yes, we all have our pile of shame that, Hey, we need to see this because it's important to the history of cinema or I just might like it. Like it's fine. It's fine. No, I, I'm with you. Stop, so, gate, stop gatekeeping. Dr. Strangelove people. is on my list of shame. Whoa. Okay. I didn't think that was going to happen. Get out of here, Troy. You call yourself a <laughs> See, cinephile. I can't, I can't believe you give that big speech and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> no, no we're just ending the podcast right now. Yeah. yeah. I didn't what, know that. No, what's funny is, um, and this is even is, I feel like an idiot for this. I own it on Laserdisc. I own oh, the special gosh. edition DVD. I uh, bought, I think Criterion put a Blu-ray out yes. recently. So I bought that. So I have bought this film over and over and over again. Uh, I, I don't know how many times, isn't it, isn't it part of, um, when Columbia did that 4k box set where Gandhi and, uh, I believe so. Yes. Okay. So then I bought it there too. If it's part of that set, 
but yeah, it's one of those films. That, is that like the only Kubrick you haven't seen? It is. And I don't know why I don't. It's something that I buy all the time. I, I every time it comes out on a format, I'm going to own it. But I, I have no idea why I've never just sat down to watch it. So yeah, but Strange, I, sure Dr. Strange Love is one of those movies that you've seen through osmosis though. I, I like think can, so. I think so. You would know like, Oh, I've seen this scene before, or, you know, this is an influence of there or there. So I, I know yeah. everything about it. I, I think, I think I've read so much of, about this film and have seen so many documentaries on it. It's one of those films that I, I just have not sat down to go. Yeah. I want to watch it and experience it. I, I know I need to. And there's probably tons of people like, well, I'm not listening to your crappy little podcast. <laughs> if you're going to sit yeah. there and talk about well, movies, now, you haven't seen. Now Dr. I feel Strange bad. If, so I want to like say one that's going to be, you know, put me in the shame list, but Okay. Hey, we're share. This is, this is, I'm trying to think what my like biggest one would be. Yeah. This is a big one for me. That's okay. I don't think you can top that one. I mean, no, you're, you're where our street cred comes from. Now, if you want to talk, you know, Asian, yeah, film, everything from Hong Kong you've seen yeah. a million times. Yeah, that's true. So, um, we talked about the, the score. It, it scored pretty low. Um, after Sony, uh, bought it, um, Rich Kelly came back and said, we got to add special effects. So that's where they sink another million in. Here's the, here, here's the interesting part is that Southland Tales was initially planned to be a nine part interactive experience. So with the first six parts, we're going to be published in six 100 page graphic novels that would be released six months leading up to the film's release. So the idea of six graphic novels was later narrowed down to three. So you can get part one, which is called Two Roads Diverge. That's a graphic novel. Part two is Fingerprints. And part three is The Mechanicals. So that leaves part four, five, and six. That's 300 pages of story prequel to this movie. Yeah, so it's very it's very Star Wars like, right? So yeah, you start your film at chapter four or episode four. I'm immediately comparing you to Star Wars. And this is what we're doing here. So he writes everything for chapter one through six, more or less, and says, okay, I'm going to do graphic novels for the first three, and I'm going to film chapter four, five, and six. And apparently there's a big interactive website that was out there at one point. Um, But yeah, they they were really trying to build a, a just fully interactive experience with this thing. And here's the other thing. So, so chapters four, five, and six of the film are actually from all the, the titles of the, of four, five, and six come from, I, I guess you would call it alternative music is the genre, right? So yes. temptation weights is garbage. Uh, memory gospel is from Moby and uh, wave of mutilation pixies probably pixies, everybody knows yes. that one. Right. <clears throat> and last little sort of fun trivia here is the village voice film poll in 2007 um, voted Southland Tales as the worst film of 2007. It actually tied with the bucket list. So those two took home, I don't know, whatever that trophy is for the Village Voice. It's probably not a trophy. It's probably like a a ball sack or something like that. <laughs> like a, yeah. like a, uh, here's like your doggy bag. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so bef- and, and the other thing I want to bring up before we talk, because Richard Kelly, the, the other thing is that Southland Tales was a script that was originally written more so with Pulp Fiction in mind or film noir because it it was written 
even before Donnie Darko was released and it was done as sort of a heist or, or crime film, film noir film. Then he goes back to visit it after really 9-11 and starts yeah. adding a lot of political overtone to it and in turn starts adding a lot of science fiction elements. But the script, the original script was more of just a, a crime story, a crime narrative. And you got to think about Southland Tales, you know, 2006, 2007. And this is super important, I think, um, in our discussion, too. The film was released five years after the September 11th attacks. And Richard Kelly is is very much influenced by everything that happened at 9-11. And then also keep in mind that the Iraq war started in 2003. So that's really in its infancy stages. Um, the USA Patriot and Terrorism Prevention Reauthoriz Reauthorization Act was passed by Congress in July of 2005, so just a year before the movie's released. Known as the Patriot Act, right? Known as the Patriot Act. And also keep in mind that George W. Bush was president when this film was being made. You don't say. Yeah. So that's all, that's all over this thing. Um, so I don't I don't know. I think, hey, we, we did pretty good. I mean, that's... Yeah, it was for, for, for an hour. Yeah. Um, whew, I, I, I guess I was... Wow, where do we start on this one? Well, let me ask you this, Brad. I, I, I want to... I don't know. I want to review a couple of stories and get your thoughts on them and, and see if you're interested in it. Okay. 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 So, um, I I'm going to pitch you a story and you tell me if you go, yep, that sounds interesting. Okay. In March, 1974, a guy named horse lover fat experiences visions of a pink beam of light that he calls zebra and interprets it as, um, theophany exposing hidden facts about the reality of our universe and a group of others join him in researching these matters. One of their theories is that there is some kind of alien space probe in orbit around Earth and that it is aiding them in their quest. It also aided the United States in disclosing the Watergate scandal and the resignation, resignation of Richard Nixon in August 1974. Kevin turns to his friends, um, or Kevin, excuse me, Kevin turns his friends onto a film called Vallis that contains obvious references to revelations identical to those that horse lover fat has experienced, including what appears to be time dysfunction. Does, does that plot or does that story interest you? Sure. It sounds really weird. I'll take it. Okay. How about, how about this one? The story is set in a futuristic dystopia where the United States has become a police state in the aftermath of the second civil war. That first one was by Philip K. Dick, by the way. I, I know that one is. Okay. Right? Yep. And then, <laughs> um, so the, the second one, um, U.S. has become a police state after second world war, a genetically enhanced pop singer and television star, Jason Taverner, who wakes up in a world where he has never existed. Does that sound interesting? Sure. So that, that's another Philip K. Dick. Yes. So flow my tears. The policeman said 1974, the first one is Vallis in 1981. Are you, a Philip K. Dick enthusiast. Now, I, I mean of the literature, not the Hollywood version of Philip K. Dick. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, um, you have I think a he's favorite book of his. Oh, I mean, because what? There's how many novels did he do? Like forty to fifty, and then untold short stories. It's hard. It's hard. Um, yeah, he I, especially because it's like novellas you know, short stories yeah, yeah you know and then then the ones i associate with the films it's hard to kind of disassociate with those films um i don't um 
I don't. But everything, you know, most science fiction that we see today is like aping at least some of the ideas of Philip K. Dick. Everything, you know, even Minority Report is like Philip K. Dick. So, um, yeah, Hollywood has done a lot with him. I mean, Total Recall. Bureau. Remember that movie? <laughs> yeah. And, and Total Recall is We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Yep. Your favorite film, Blade Runner. Do Androids Dream of an Electric Sheep? Um, I don't know if you're a fan of the Peter Weller film Screamers, which is a Philip K. Dick second variety. Yeah. Um, I know my probably my favorite book of his that's more traditional is The Man in the High Castle, but I haven't seen oh, the yes. series. Yes. But I absolutely think that is um that that one is is amazing. Uh that's alternate realities, you know, all this stuff, alternate histories, right? Yeah. So Philip Philip K. Dick is, I mean, he is probably my favorite science fiction writer, author. And and if we're talking about overall authors, he'd definitely be in the top three for me. Absolutely love all of his work, but I do recognize. I mean, you can't you can't love science fiction and not appreciate at least appreciate Philip K. Dick because if you know if you don't like his stuff, you don't like science fiction. I I don't know if that's true. I, I'll say this: I think Philip K. Dick's an acquired his, taste. His fingerprints are all over the place, though. Yeah, I agree, but that that's why I would come back and say that Philip K. Dick isn't for everybody. I mean, if you've read Valis, Valis is oh, it's amazing. weird as shit. Yeah, it's and Ubalik, I think is the second one after this one. I, I love that one too. But it, I don't know. The the thing with Philip K. Dick is if even if I'm talking science fiction with somebody. I am not one to go out there and just go, I, I think you should read Valis. I don't know if that's for everybody because it is very challenging science fiction. No. Yeah. I, I understand that. But like the, uh, the ideas and themes in Valis are kind of bleed through into other science fiction because so many screenwriters and stuff are influenced. It just, it's just like not aping his ideas or, or stealing his ideas. It's just, you know, imprinted on their brain on how science fiction should work. So I'm just saying like, yes, Philip K. Dick might not be for everyone, but his hands are all over science fiction, regardless if he's involved or not. Oh, I, I agree. And I, I think okay. there's, I think there's a lot of good media that takes aspects of Philip K. Dick and can make it more digestible. But I mean, pure Philip K. Dick, especially towards the later parts of his year, I, I think is a little tough to get through t for the average science fiction fan. I mean, is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, he's yeah. He's weird. He's weird, weird, weird. Okay. But you know, and this is one of my notes I have, but understanding does not always equal enjoyment. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Okay. Like I don't need to understand everything to enjoy oh, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I see where you're going. Yes, I agree with you. And and sometimes, especially with films, I mean we talked about transgressive cinema when we when we talked about Under the Skin. And and I'm with you. I I think Southland Tales I don't think is transgressive cinema, but it definitely falls into a bucket of cinema that is intended to I think be divisive it's also intended to be very dense. And I feel it's one of those films that regardless if you like it, dislike it, et cetera, you have to really do a good job of articulating what's working and what's not working. Um, I, to be to full disclosure, this film, I've taken more notes during it than I've taken any film we've done so far. And 
I can totally see that. I don't, I don't know if my notes were more expansive. I, I can tell you this. I had to sit down and, and really digest this one before this, this is one of those films where I don't, I don't know how you watch things. I can't sometimes really sit down and take notes while you're watching it. And, and especially under the skins, another good one, all of my notes came after the view. And and yeah, this was I, one of those two where it was, okay, I really can't even for a second, take my eyes off of what's going on for fear that I'm going to miss out on something. And so, um, I had a tough time after this really just unpacking it all. Yeah. So listener, here's how Troy and I watch movies. Uh, you know what? I do the same thing. It's like, I have to be fully immersed in a movie, especially when we're doing it for this. Like if I'm just watching whatever, you know, I can come and go, but I really try to kind of put on, I don't want to say a critical hat because I don't, you know, feel myself as a film critic, but you know, I'm looking at it in a, through another lens. And so I really try to zero distractions. I'm just going to sit down and afterwards it's like, here's all my thoughts. And then if I have to go back and say, okay, what, what did they say here? Or what happened here? I'll go back. But that initial time it's all about the movie and then go back and take notes and then, rewatch stuff if I need to. Yeah. But I, I, I bring up the Philip K. Dick stuff and those stories specifically because just reading a, a Philip K. Dick summary on Vallis or flow my tears. The policeman said, if, if you as a listener have never seen Southland tales and those two plot descriptions or stories that I summarized, if you're like, dude, that's too weird. I have no interest in it. You need to stay far away from this movie big time. Like if, if you go and read the description of Alice or, or flow, my tears, a policeman said, and you go, wow, that just sounds so crazy. I don't think I can keep up with it or it's not interesting. Full disclosure, you, you need to skip this film right out of the gate. So, um, all right, Brad, I'm, I, I, I can, I can play a soundbite of, of something. I don't know. That is equal to the text that you were giving me while you're watching this film. You want me to play that? Sure, go ahead. Okay, so for for listeners, rather than read the the text, I was trying to find something that would represent the energy and the comments that were coming through from Brad as he was watching Southland Tales because you watched it on a different night than what I watched. Yeah, it on. And, and I never text Troy during the week about how I feel, never. my thoughts on a movie. Yeah, most of the time we come in blind. Uh, every once in a while, we we may share or or tip our hat a little bit, but on this one. You were watching it a few days earlier before my watch, and and you were were sending me texts when you were watching it, then the day after, and then the day after that. And um, here here's the best audio representation I could find of of Brad watching this film. No God, no God, please no, 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 no. <laughs> is that is that pretty much sum it up? That's, that's it. That is it. All right, Brad, lay it on me. What, what's your initial thoughts on Southland Tales? Okay. So I am going to articulate this the best I can for the next, I don't know, half an hour or so as we talk. <laughs> okay. Um, so I know making movies is really hard, Troy. And I've read a bunch of interviews with Richard Kelly. He seems like a really nice guy. Southland Tales is what happens when you have grand ideas but you lack grand skills. Oh, um, wow. 
this is Southland Tales is like this self-important, self-indulgent film that requires the viewer to do homework of 300 pages of a prequel comic to even come close to understanding. And I feel if your art requires that much prep work and cannot stand on its own, you have failed to make a movie because things need to just be, Um, you know, it's like Richard Kelly only knows 1984 through the game telephone. And at the very end of it, when it gets to him, he's like, sure, I can do that. And kind of gets the Orwellian thing a little bit, but it's through this, like that guy who went to philosophy that had like one philosophy class in college. And then he comes back during winter break and starts pontificating so much about Descartes and all that crap. And you're like, Oh, okay. You think you're a smart guy now. I mean, this film is like a prime example, a prime example of like being a jack of all trades, but like a master of dog shit. Oh my goodness. To be fair, to be fair, this movie is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my entire life. And I will tell you why I believe that when you, so Samurai Cop. Okay. They went out to make a film that was about this guy who was from San Diego and he's a cop and blah, blah, blah. You know, he fights crime. There's a dude with really cool face, uh, whatever their scope in, in grandeur was let's make Samurai Cop. Richard Kelly set out to make one of what I feel is like this grand film and he was swinging for the fences. And when you swing for the fences, sometimes you miss. And he struck out so hard that I just, I cannot fathom how anyone sits at this movie and says, okay, let's throw out any sort of understanding of pace, of tone, of character development. Anything that is like traditional filmmaking is not in this movie. And I understand it is a satire. I understand satire. I get it. But this is just, dude, this film is borderline unwatchable. Um, I was texting you Wednesday saying, I have to start this movie now because I know it's going to take me a while to get through. Um, And I got about 25 minutes in the first night. It was like, you know what? No. Um, You know, luckily um, on Friday came, I I had a little bit of the new Resident Evil Village to play. So that kind (laughs) of helped me get through the weekend. But man, I, you know, I know this is no surprise to you, but I hate this movie so much. Like this is like on my list of top five worst movies I've ever seen easily. I have never heard you be so wrong about anything in the how many years we've been? I and what you are, is, you are not doing this to? Are you serious? I am one hundred percent serious. So I will give it to you that it is a messy film. I, I I agree with that. That somebody can come back and say from a pacing perspective these elements don't work. There are performances that don't work in this film. 
I he is swinging for the fences in a big way, but I think at the core, some of the narrative, while it digresses in places where I don't think is very interesting, overall it has enough going for it that it really captures the stuff that I like about you know Philip K. Dick's later work, like Vallister. Um, the last two books that he made that was, you know, trying to be of that trilogy and it's not for everybody. So I can totally understand where you would look at this and go, it's the worst movie. I don't like the pace. I don't like what he's doing here. I don't like how he's trying to handle the satire, but I am shocked that you are coming at it so hard and saying that here's a person who doesn't know anything about dystopian science fiction outside of what his buddy told him, because that's where you're coming up with your telephone analogy. I think Richard Kelly knows more about that type of literature than either of us or most auteurs that are out there. Now, he has a trouble handling that scope, and I think he would have done good with somebody, a producer, somebody else kind of saying, hey, let me let me help you rein this in a little bit. I, I think he got a lot out of his budget. Um, this looks in some instances a little bit more than a $17 million film, except some of the special effects are a little dodgy. But I got to say this, some of the themes that are in there and what he's doing, I, I think are really inventive. I love some of his social satire and comment commentary, especially in the context of when this film came out, which is early 2000. And yeah, okay, I, okay, let me stop you there. Yep. So, okay, in 2006, if I said in 15 years, we're going to have less, we're going to be, the police are going to be more militarized, we're going to be ravaging the earth for natural resources, we're going to, you know, be, have less privacy out in public, would that make me smart or would that make me a person that has eyes and ears of what's going on in 2006? I, I don't, I, I, <laughs> I've, I've heard that comment on a lot of YouTube stuff. I, I think there's a YouTube video floating around talking about Richard Kelly wasn't um, really, a, you know, talking about the future in such a smart way. He was just looking at the Patriot Act. He was looking at what George Bush was doing. And um, if you were anybody that paid attention to the news, um, all the stuff that he's commenting on is just, yeah, it, it's the future. And that's what it's going to be. And so you don't have to be a smart guy to kind of make that prediction. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but what I do think he does a very good job I'm of doing that someone on YouTube beat me to that. Yeah. I thought I, I was being I, smart. <laughs> no, I mean, it's that, that's the biggest criticism that come at him because if anybody says, Oh, well look at Richard Kelly and he was calling like the right wing, um, racism that's occurring within the police force, or he's talking about the advertising within the industrialized military complex, or he's talking about all the, the ozone layer sort of collapsing and all the forest fires we're going to have in California. Like, well, duh. I mean, everybody saw that. And so therefore he wasn't a very smart filmmaker. Hey dude, all, I don't think you have to be common sense and pay attention to the news. You can see exactly where the country's been, where it's going and it's predictable. 
Uh-huh. We, everything comes in cycles. We go really far to the left, then we go really far to the right. We're rarely in the middle on anything. And what we were doing in 1960, 1970, we're going to be doing again here very soon. Um, it, it It's all cyclical, right? So I, I don't think he's trying to be the Nostradamus of social commentary and go, well, let me show you something that you guys don't know that's coming. I think he's trying to take his voice and put it out there and do it in such a way that it the message is no different than the millions of messages that were happening in 2003, 2005, 2006 where people are going, "Hey dude, this stuff that this president's doing or or you know, the Patriot Act, you got to be it's a slippery slope." Or look at what the cops are doing. I, I mean, dude, we we see that all the time. We've been seeing it in films for decades, but it always comes down to. Yeah, we saw it in RoboCop. Yeah, it, much hey, better. Well, Ro- RoboCop's a great example, and and a side plug. Our good friends at the VHS um, Files uh, podcast have an excellent. I'm telling you, an excellent uh, episode out there right now in RoboCop. It's so much fun to listen to, but that's a good example of you know somebody um, Paul Verhoeven talking about the militarized police or you know losing humanity, etc. At the end of the day. <laughs> Well, let me let me put it to you this way: Have have you ever walked into a bookstore and gone into like the business or self help um, section or like how to be a good manager, or how to be a good leader? You've seen those books, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's like walls and walls of these books, and everybody's out there like, "Hey, try these seven habits of highly effective um, leadership. Try servant leadership. Try this type of sure. management style." You're, you're kind of you're you're shocked that I have makes me feel like I'm not a good leader and it really hurts me. Well, no, the, the whole point of this is depending, <laughs> and I don't know how many of those you've read. I, I end up reading a, a lot of them at the end of the day, those books are taking the same piece of information and they're trying to repackage it in such a way that it connects with a certain type of person. So one book like a John Maxwell book, um, cause he writes a lot of those leadership books he is not going to connect with everybody, but uh, was it Stephen Covey who does the seven habits of highly effective people? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. He's, he's going to have another book and I didn't do my research on the, the seven yeah. habits of a highly effective. <laughs> yeah. And, and before this. He, he's going to write another book that probably has the same principles that Maxwell's going after, but it's done in a certain format. And whereas somebody will read that Maxwell book and go, man, that, that doesn't connect with me. They'll pick up the Stephen Covey book and go, oh, well, this one I can use. So at the end of the day, they're going to end up in the same place and be an effective leader, but they've got two different handbooks that they're using to get there. And it's two different messaging types, right? And to me, yeah. Rich, Richard Kelly is making a film and he's doing social commentary and it all comes down to... It's a, it's a science fiction, film noir, crime. I mean, it's got everything in there. And the Bible, the time Bible, travel. All of it, right. yeah. Thermodynamics and physics and all this other stuff. You're going to look at that and you're going to go, I find that entertaining. I find his messaging poignant in terms of what it was going on in 2006. Or I think it's hot garbage and I like this version over here because it's – I don't know, tapping into my senses or my likes versus this over here. So his message is no different than a lot of, I would say, forward thinking, maybe political filmmakers were in 2006. It's just his message doesn't resonate with you. So well, I, I, don't, I, I think I think my problem with this film mainly is 
it's saying so much that it ended up saying nothing. You know, like it's, it is just this, we're going to have all these ideas and themes and we're going to shoot them out there. And at the end of the day, we don't really say anything at the end because we've said so much that there's really no focus. Like, I, I don't know what the overall thing of this movie is like, and I know there's like probably 10 to 15, but I, to me, it's like, it would be better if it was less shotgun and more laser. I, I don't disagree. It's a, it has, it has, a, it's a mess um, when it comes to some of its storytelling choices, but just because it's a mess, I don't, I, I can't sit here and say I wasn't affected by it. And and I can list the things where I go, Hey, I, I thought this was a smart way of making that, comment or observation about the world. And I can also point to things where I'm like, Oh, I see what you're doing here, but I, I, I don't think you're very effective at that. And and like, I get the melodrama. I get the satire. Like that is not my problem with this film. And it's not even, I think the performances are mostly bad because the dialogue of this movie is embarrassing. Like if I feel feel bad that Dwayne Johnson had to say, I'm a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide, that line is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Maybe, actually, Sarah Michelle Gellar's first line in this movie, she just says stigmata, and that's it. That's her first line. (laughs) I think she's one of the best things about the film. I agree, but literally she just says stigmata. Okay, we get it. You have some biblical stuff in your movie. Justin Timberlake is always going to do is read the Bible the entire time of the, yeah, you saw that time where Jules Winfield said something from the Bible and you're just going to literally circle jerk around it and do it the entire time in this movie. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the performances and, and we can, we can break the conversation down. Cause I, I think it's about talking about the performances. It's talking about the messaging. I think it's talking about, um, Hey, my, my heart rate, my heart is beating right now. You said, okay, let's just go. Well, no, I just, Hey, look, if you, if you were to ask me to sum it up, I go, okay, here's a dude who is on LSD or some drug gets locked in a hotel room is watching David Lynch's Dune. Didn't read the book, but watching David Lynch's Dune. Um, and then reading a bunch of Philip K. Dick books and then goes, I'm going to write my own opus. That that's what this film is. So Orson Welles sprinkled on top. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you look at that summary and you go, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. Now with, with that type of summary, you've got to understand putting David Lynch's Dune, Philip K. Dick, a little bit of Orson Welles and being on drugs, maybe throwing some soap opera elements into it. That's not going to mix well, but it will be interesting. And, and that's why I, I said, i I don't know if this is as much pop art as it is performance art. And I'm not sitting here defending like hundred percent of it works all the time, but it comes down for me probably about 70% of it works. And I find interesting. Like I, I've watched this a couple of times and I watched the longer cut and I wouldn't mind going back and not in the so distant future and sitting down and revisiting the theatrical cut again, even with David Kelly's commentary. Cause it's on that arrow video, but let, let's, let, let's, let's direct our comments for a second and talk about the performances because I think, I think you're onto something here. Um, the performances either make or break in my opinion, whether or not you're on board with this thing, because the script, it has some cheesy moments, but it also has some pretty smart moments as well. 
So let's let's talk about Dwayne Johnson. Um, I I I think this is an example of overacting, uh, which I think is what he's going for, right? I don't I don't I know was, what he's going for. The I, thing with the fingers and him being so like feeble, like. But he goes back and forth. There is no consistency in that character whatsoever. So he goes from nervous twitch with the fingers to your your I'm a pimp. Pimp don't commit suicide line. There's so much inconsistency with the character that I don't buy it. Like I feel like Dwayne Johnson is trying to act versus Dwayne Johnson embodying that character. Yes. Though I was trying to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt and it's like, is one of them, is he boxer like sometimes and then Jericho other times? Like, is that kind of why they're different? I don't know. I, it could I don't be. Know. I, I'm I, just trying, I was trying to like pull at straws, man. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Like I found if that's what's happening, I find his performance so bad that it becomes a distraction. If that's what he's going for. There's only one, one scene that I actually think he's really good in. And that's the car ride between him and Sean William Scott. And excuse me, Sean William Scott drops that line on him about, oh, yeah, we just watch out for this type of person. And his look, (laughs) it's that I did you are you really saying what you're saying? And Sean, yeah, I'm saying this. And he's no, no, no. Are you the tension in that scene is so good. It's palpable. And I really think that's the best that Dwayne Johnson has in the film and everything else outside of that scene isn't really good. Yeah. I will say of the two hours and 21 minutes of this film, I think there's like three good minutes in this movie. Those two minutes being one of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, well then let's lead to Sean William Scott. So he's, he is the, two brothers. He is definitely going for, I think what you said, which is here's the same person. Uh, it, it's the Philip K Dick element, right? Yeah. I, I actually think he's really good in this. He is pretty much departing from that Stifler comedic act that he's sort of known for. And, yeah, and I'm sure that was a direction he was getting like from Kelly is don't be Stifler, be this guy. Cause you know, we want the audience to be, weirded out that you're not stifler (laughs) well i I don't know if it's that i mean i i think i think he's the straight man and a lot of the comedic elements to it and he does it very well and him trying to put the pieces together like that's a character i actually believe i don't see sean william scott within that character i i do see this guy sort of out of sync and I, i love that whole mirror exchange where he's seeing his reflection and it's out of sync a little bit he's trying to figure it out I think he, I think he's really good in this film and he is the grounding element to the story, in my opinion. Now for, for the satire, you get Sarah Michelle Geller, and I, I got to say, I mean, she owns that role of the manipulative porn star who's trying to be an entrepreneur. And that line that you said uh, that Dwayne Johnson just murders, there's an equally just cheesy line in the film. And the difference between acting here is Dwayne Johnson does his pimp thing and it's supposed to be, are you talking about the pilgrims line? Well, that one's good too, but I actually think that's, that's really funny. So she gives a couple lines. The first one that's just really cheesy. And you would look at that and go, well, that, okay, I see what you're doing here. But when she says it, it's, 
actually very funny. It's the scientists are saying the future is going to be far more fu futuristic than they originally predicted. When you hear that, you go, that is the dumbest thing. But she says it with conviction. And given her character, she really believes that line. I, that got a little chuckle out of me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And then the other thing that I laughed out loud when she's doing her talk show, and it, and it is the Pilgrim's line, but she goes on this rant and she says, we're a bisexual nation living in denial all because of a bunch of nerds, a bunch of nerds who got off a boat in the 15th century and decided that sex was something to be ashamed of. All the Pilgrims did was ruin the American Indian orgy of freedom. I laughed out loud when she said that. And again, she's been given, I think, some dialogue that she taps into the tone and she taps into that character. And I think the reason why most of the performances don't work in this film is people are struggling with the tone. They they don't know what to make of it. But I think Sarah Michelle Gellar knows her character. Uh, just look at that scene when she shows up at the house of um, the all the politicians that are having the big party. And she has this whole exchange where Dwayne Johnson's character is trying to defend her in front of his wife. And uh, she is playing off of everybody. And she has this great comedic timing. But she's trying to stand up for herself, too. And her exchange, I mean, she in, in that whole exchange amongst everybody, she really stands out in that performance. But I think she gets the tone of her character. I think Sean William Scott gets the tone of his character. Dwayne Johnson is trying to figure it out on screen, and it's a distraction. The other person that I think got the tone of their character was um, Cherry O'Terry. She's fantastic in this film and is a great blend of sort of goofy and sadistic, and she blends those two elements really well, and she's really fun to watch in this movie. Notice you didn't say Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake is terrible. Yes. Um, he's atrocious. Except for one sequence. No, don't. Please I, don't say I love it. Don't. I, the dream sequence with the killer song, I think, is really good because you actually get that moment of pain. Uh, and I love that song. I, I love what that song's trying to say. And I think they use it really well for that moment. He really sells the the I, soldier character for that one instance, but the rest of the film, I think he's terrible in it. I've never been more disappointed in you. I've never been more disappointed in you, especially given how much I know you love science fiction, Philip K. Dick, everything else. And for you not even to just grasp onto these elements. No, I, I, again, like, I don't feel like I'm dumb and not seeing it there. I, I'm not calling uh, you dumb. What, I, what I'm I trying to say is. I see the on the stick. Yeah. But, but, I, but at the same time, I get why you wouldn't like it. Like I said, it, it goes back to, look, you can read 15 different leadership books. Not all 15 different leadership books are going to resonate with you. It's You're going to watch 15 politically charged films. They're not all going to click with you. Some are, some aren't. I mean, Under the Skin clicks with you. Doesn't really click with me. Um this is in that same caliber where you're you're going to find something where you go, man, I know where it's coming from and I I I understand the source material, but it doesn't speak to me. Hey man, that's cool. I, I understand under the skin doesn't speak to me. This one does. I mean, anytime you want to try to take this movie somewhat serious and be like, okay, it's trying to say something. It's just like, okay, now we're just gonna keep saying proposition 69 over and over and over again. It's like, I get it. 69. It's funny. Nice. Funny. 
it's 69. And then you're just, and then you're like, okay, maybe they'll drop the 69 thing. And then Dwayne Johnson's character figures out that like he was gone for 69 minutes or whatever. And you're like, okay, I get it. Can we like have a 420 joke in here too? And we'll complete that exact joke and get over it. Like, well, and th- those are the elements I don't like. So the U.S. ident, the the whole Patriot Patriot Act um, commentary, I, it doesn't work for me. I, the whole Big Brother is spying on you and wants to control the internet. There's no nuance there. So again, it's just we're throwing it in. It's a it's a subplot. Um, it is in response to it. It's the political overture in the film that doesn't work. The but that ties into that whole sixty nine thing. The character who gets drafted is going to commit suicide. Again, no no nuance there whatsoever. Um, but but the stuff that does work that I I laughed at, um, the tanks driving by with the hustler advertisement on it, where you know you've got the advertisements that are sort of on the 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 military vehicles and everything of that nature. I I thought that's that's kind of funny, and it's really saying something that is more nuanced. I I like. I think the best thing about this film, so when you learn that Richard Kelly started with one screenplay and it's really about a bunch of Marxist comedians who do stand-up comedy are going to kidnap somebody who is part, uh, who's a famous actor, part of a um, political family and hold them for ransom. Like that, that's the first screenplay. And that story element, I think, is really good in this film. And so the whole crime story of trying to set up an actor affiliated with a political party um, with a racist cop and stages thing, I I think that is just downright hilarious. I I love that whole sequence. That's that works for me. The, The porn star that's trying to do a talk show and tackle social issues and she gives that pilgrim line. And then the other one who's who's trying to sound smart and, and goes through the whole um, birth control topic in the Supreme Court, that stuff made me laugh out loud. So I, I get not every one of these punches land, but if I'm if I'm doing a count here, okay, well, we're in the majority because there's more of those nuanced social things that um, I find interesting versus the stuff where I go, okay, yeah, you, you can skip that part. I'm, I'm not into that. I- Okay, here's another here's another uh, note that I have. Let me find it real quick. Okay, and it says, <clears throat> "Would you let any other sort of medium get away with kind of requiring you to have prior knowledge of something before fully being uh, being able to fully understand something?" So the 300 pages of reading before you can fully understand what's going on in this film. Are you okay with that? Like, so that's assuming that I don't take away from the film itself and get something out of it. Yes, but you could get out more. I'm, I'm guessing if you understood what was going on. So now you're just talking about the whole star Wars franchise. Well, star Wars by itself, like works, right? You don't need any prior, you know, like, and for me, this film works. I I don't, I don't need to. Yeah. And I get what you're saying is that again, one of the criticisms that is levied against this is why would, why would you start this film at like chapter four? If the story starts at one and, and, and that is a, that's a good question is that 
if this film doesn't stand on its own, forget the graphic novel or the web or the shorts or anything that they're doing before it, right? Do you remember that in the 2000s we were doing all that stuff? It was like, okay, you got to go here. You got to do this. Yeah, we're you got to read this. Co- we're still doing we're it. Still kind of doing look, that, at, but- look at the Marvel Universe now. Like, you can't go and be a fully vested uh, viewer in any of the superhero films under Marvel unless you watch WandaVision or um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I mean, we we have gotten to a new level of that. Hey, buy this subscription service. And that <laughs> way, if you get the subscription service and watch these TV shows, you'll be ready for the next film because you won't know what this thing means anymore, right? So she'll so make $2 billion though. So oh, I, everyone I know. sees them. And, and they're, they're bubblegum movies, right? They're, yeah, they're the popcorn yeah. films. No, yeah. So I, 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 I get it. But I, yeah. I, for you, you could look at this and go, the the story, the narrative, the messaging, the performance, everything doesn't work for you. And so by default, when you learn about the graphic novels, you go, well, I, I obviously have to read those 300 pages or whatever in yeah. order to understand the story. Because, because I, that, I want to get – like I don't want to waste two hours and 25 minutes watching a movie and feeling like I'm not getting – everything out of it that I should. Well, do you actually, let me ask you this. Do you actually think given your dislike of this film so much that those 300 pages are going to do anything for you? No, not at all. Not for this thing, but like, you know, it's, I don't know. No, no, not at all. You're right. But, but it's so off putting too, that it's also kind of like a slap in the face saying, I, I don't know. I feel like it's like no. telling me I'm not smart enough. No. Like everything I, on this movie is, it, I just feel like it is a attack on the intelligence of the viewer. And it's saying you don't get it. Yeah. It's melodrama. It's satire. It's uh, you know, I don't think the movie's not saying that the movie is presenting its case and its story and everything else. Richard Kelly's out there it's saying so over the top, though, you know, it's, it's supposed it's so to be, face. it's yeah. supposed I, to yeah. be. Yeah. But Richard Kelly isn't, I, I, at least I don't think I'm sure Richard Kelly's out there going by the graphic novel because you'll get more of the story if you want to explore it, et cetera. But I also think Richard Kelly is saying, take the movie on its own and watch it. And if you get something out of it and you want to explore it more, go read about it. But I don't think he's doing a film and, and just putting it out there with the intent that he's going to confuse the audience to the point that they can't walk away without digesting some element of it or being entertained or something of that nature without going to read something. I think the graphic novels are just like what Marvel does, what Lucas does and everything else and saying, hey, you want to keep going? Then you got this other avenue over here, but you got to take the movie on its own. Um, can I read you a note that I have? Yeah. Because it's funny, you've been saying Philip K. Dick, and my last note is Southland Tales is a Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick story with an edgelord twist. <laughs> what an edgelord twist? Yeah, edgelord. It's like uh, someone who tries to appear to be edgy or uh, do offensive things. Like it's they're they're an edgelord. Okay, but it's posing. It's po- Oh, it's a it's a poser. Yes. I don't, I don't know. I, I think that's not far off. I think it's, it, here's the thing. If, if you read Vallis or you read the divine invasion 
and really like those stories and not just the ideas, but the way those stories are told. I think Southland Tales does a great job of capturing that style of Philip K. Dick fiction. I think he does a good job with most of the satire that, that, and here's the thing, the first 15 minutes, um, really when, when I sat down to watch it, I'm like, Oh boy, what? I, I thought I liked this the last time I saw it. And when I'm watching the first 15, 20, 20 minutes or so where it's all exposition before you get to the title card and everything else and they're, Hey, we, we've got this fuel, et cetera. It's really when you come to the scene with Sherry O'Terry and Christopher Lambert and they're in the ice cream truck and she's drawing to buy ammunition. She has uh, that funny line about, um, you know, there'd be a lot less violence in the world if everyone just got a little bit more cardio and he just wants her out of the ice cream truck and, you know, there's a $500 minimum. And so she's like, fine, I'll, you know, buy something else outside of the blanks. And she starts to write him a personal check. (laughs) I mean, that old sequence and then her just beating the crap out of Christopher Lambert. I I loved it. At that point, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember why I like this, because there's enough of those elements in this film. And again, it's it's that sort of um, that premise of this neo-Marxist group that is on rollerblades kidnapping Dwayne Johnson and, and is going to kind of fake this whole murder by a racist cop, that stuff I think is really funny. And I think it works. I, so the neo-Marxists, every time they said that, I was just thinking, oh, this is what people think like Antifa is. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But I mean, and, and I think again, that works even in today's commentary. When you look at what goes on in the news and the riots that occur downtown in this film versus the riots uh, you know, that happened in, in all our cities and everything else. There's like you said, let's call them protests. Let's not say riots. Okay. Protests, right. (laughs) Either or, but, um, at the, let's call it this, there's social upheaval that occurs, right? So one side's going to label it riots. One side's going to label it protests. I don't care what you call it, but at the end of the day, it's social unrest. And to your point, Richard Kelly, isn't saying anything new because, filmmakers have been, you know, hinting at social unrest in certain films for decades on decades. And and us as a country, we, we cyclically go through the same mistakes and the same accomplishments, then one step forward, two steps back. And Hey, we got a little of a gain here and we had to, you know, fight pretty hard and all this blood, sweat and tears just to, just to get equality for something that we kind of thought was already there when we passed some laws, but found out it wasn't. So, um, I mean, again, I think this film is relevant even today, not all of it. Um, it was relevant back then. And from a, from an entertainment perspective, I was entertained, but I also like some of the messaging and I like the story. No, I, I wish. So this is one of those movies I kind of wish that I enjoyed because what you're saying is like, it's saying all these things. Um, it's weird and it's sci-fi and that should be something that I really enjoy. So I gave this movie like a lot of leash too. Like I wanted to enjoy this movie, but I just think every step along the way, it's forcing me not to like, it is openly trying for me not to like it. It's, it's amazing how impenetrable I find some of this stuff. And again, that's, that's what surprises me about it in terms of your reaction, because it, it, 
I thought it had all of the elements within it, especially when you understand he's borrowing heavily from Vonnegut and uh, Philip K. Dick and, and that source material. And I know you love those authors. And I, I know you like even movies that are inspired by those authors. So when you gave me a hint at one point where you're like, ooh, I'm not a big fan of Southland Tales. I'm like, oh, I really want to talk about that then. Because to me, this is the type of movie that I kind of thought was made for you. Uh, because it's got all of those elements. And to your point, it it just doesn't work from an execution standpoint. And and again, pick I, I use the whole business literature because every time I go into Barnes and Nobles and or or you know any bookstore and you see the massive amount of shelves for the, pretty much the same freaking story or information, it's just repackaged. I totally understand why it doesn't hit, but really what I love about this podcast and what I like about bringing this kind of movie up is I kind of want to understand why it doesn't work for you. Like I know why it works for me and I can articulate that I think, but um, I'm curious for, you know, just a movie goer who really likes science fiction, (laughs) who really likes Philip K. Dick, why like this doesn't connect with him. It's funny too, because like I have never outside of like Mulholland Drive, I don't like David Lynch. Like, I just don't, I just, I cannot get behind Lynch's films. Um, Mulholland Drive is kind of the outlier there. Uh, Twin Peaks, I, I enjoy, but like his feature films, like Eraserhead. Like, you don't like no Eraserhead? Yeah, no see, I, I talk about transgressive cinema. There's, there's Eraserhead and I really enjoy Eraserhead. Like, I think A Clockwork Orange or Being John Malkovich, uh, even maybe Donnie Darko is a hundred times better than Eraserhead. Wow. Um, I think they're just different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, but they're like, you're talking like weird sci-fi. Like those are the ones that kind of come to my head. Um, uh, let me ask you this okay. and, and maybe you can shed some light on this. What is the goal of this movie? I, which I know is a tough question, but I think at the end of it, I'm, that was my thing that I kept coming away from is what does the filmmaker ultimately want me to walk away from this film thinking about? I think that's a great question. I I don't know if I have an answer for it because I think every time I watch it and kind of walk away. So, so this time as an example, and I think it I'm and maybe the box is what's putting this in my head. But when I look at what is happening in this film, And then I watched The Box. And even when you watch Donnie Darko, I can't decide if Richard Kelly as a filmmaker has a very nihilistic approach or just assumes that we as the human race are are just out for self-destruction. I I think that is a common theme because he is very, I don't know, fixated on the apocalypse and apocalypse literature and apocalypse storytelling. Uh, and, and that's prevalent in the box. I, I don't think he thinks of human beings <laughs> in, in a very positive light when you read the box or watch the box. I think when you watch Southland Tales, I think he has a bunch of characters who are trying to do better as a human being, but ultimately end up undercutting themselves. Because the, the whole nature of this thing is you end up getting Dwayne Johnson's character and Sean William Scott's character. It's the same person, but they're split because of a time rift. So it's a past and future version of them. 
and you get this big climax where, hey, they can't occupy the same space, that whole science fiction trope. They and, can't cross the streams. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> yeah. So, and and they do, and that ends up being the end of the world, right? And I think, I think the message might be that we as human beings are constantly trying to do something to help ourselves out and be it the left side or the right side or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it's our own nature. That's always going to be our downfall. Okay. I mean, so I, I do like kind of that first little, let me tell you the, the two kind of parts I have left that I want to compliment before we, I was going to say you had three minutes you liked and you already talked about two well, of them. Well, the squib part, the squib part kind of made me laugh. Yes. When they shoot them and then the guy hits the squib button and it pops. I I kind of laugh pretty, pretty, pretty hearty at that. I, I don't know. I just find that really funny. And then the beginning, because I completely forgot the beginning of this film where it's the handheld and I'm assuming it's like a 4th of July party. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of vibe that it sets up is really cool. And I was like, oh, like. I would kind of like to see that movie. And then by the end of it, you're looking at a cartoon mega Zeppelin fly across the screen. And you're like, ah, like maybe we shouldn't have done that. Once we saw that, like we didn't have the money to not have a PlayStation one game show up on the screen. Like (laughs) that blimp looks really bad. Um, And there's some scenes. It's like, we spent all of our money on talent, which you know, helps this movie a lot, but there's really not anything left after that. And the effects suffer from it quite a bit. Um, I don't know. It's yeah, just, I, I, it's a weird way to put that Zeppelin is. Yeah. And then there's all these constant references to Donnie Darko. And I'm like, man, if you keep bringing up Donnie Darko, I'm just going to turn this movie off and go watch that. Cause that's a better movie. Like, Oh, and I, I agree with you. Donnie Darko is a better film than South. I mean, out of the three, I would probably rank Donnie Darko and then go to the box. And then this one, this is the, you know, the last of his filmography, but I think all three films, I mean, one thing that I've realized about Richard, I really love him as a writer and director Southland tales. Again, I totally understand now when you're talking through it, why it's not working for you. And I go, yep. You're right. You shouldn't go back and revisit this thing. I know you. I know you bought the Blu-ray. You should probably sell it because you're you're not going <laughs> to go back and watch it again. I know. I that that is like one of the things that I get on you and Sammy all the time about is you all buy movies and then just literally put them to the side and never watch them. And I'm like, no. When you buy it, watch it, and then you get it off the list. So um, well, I try yeah, to. I, I, I mean, I I, I still am operating under this fear, and I see it today where so many things go out of print and yeah. then you get into distribution rights and you can stream it here, but you can't. And look, I'm not well, going to go and, and buy 18 different streaming platforms just so I have availability to it. And then on top of that, and, secondhand market too. Yeah. And the other thing is there are a lot of films that I want my kids to discover. I, I love the fact that, you know, my kids on their own are going through the collection and saying, Oh, this looks interesting. And then, you know, the next day it's uh yeah, I watched this and, and I heard you talk about it at one point. So I like having that library, but this is one I definitely am going to go back and watch again because I do think there's some more stuff to unpack. And like you said, what's the ultimate message of this thing? I I don't know. It's the human race is making the same mistakes over and over again. I I think that's pretty prevalent. 
okay. I think I think it's interesting that um, and what I constantly try to unpack is really the the identical brothers and him trying to go and find him and that whole forgiveness thing. So, you know, there is there is a lot to say with the whole Iraq war. That's where I think it's a little clunky. And and again, because yeah, they allude to like Fallujah and things like that. And that's like, you know, just saying that kind of resonates with people, but they don't really you say the word and then you don't really do anything with it. So, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and again, I, I <laughs> that Justin Timberlake sequence within the mm-hmm. arcade with mm-hmm. the killer. I mean, one of my favorite killer songs is all the things that I've done. Cause I really, it was my favorite. Not anymore. Oh yeah. I still, it's still my favorite. And again, it's the one aspect where I see his performance actually come through a little bit and it works where the song's playing and he's, he's just kind of gets that thousand yard stare a little bit and you see him trying to process all the things that he's done. And I'm like, okay, that that's a good use for it. And I like it, but every, uh, the whole narration that he does with that accent, man, that takes me right out of it. But I, again, I like the Philip K. Dick elements of it. I like the crime story element of it. There's about 60 or 70% of this thing that I think is really, really sharp. It's really good. I think there are three performances in this film that are so much fun to watch. Um, and there's a lot of stuff not to like, so, but it doesn't, it doesn't outweigh it for me. Okay. Can I ask you a question? Of course. And now, and now I know you are not going to put Richard Kelly in this group, but the old sophomore slump, this was his second film. People put him in the category of what they call a sophomore slump. So your first film that obviously you make is your, a big hit. People love it then you have a sophomore slump. You're not agreeing to that, but I went and looked at some of the, the biggest ones and Richard Kelly is put on this list. Usually, um, is Michael Cimino on there for heaven's gate. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, Sam Raimi is on that list because he did evil dead and then he did crime wave after that. Have, have you seen crime wave? I have not seen crime wave. I saw crime wave for the first time at the end of last year. And, uh, I, that's probably one I won't revisit. But okay. you can definitely see Sam Raimi's fingerprints all over it, man. Um, another interesting one is Dennis Hopper. Of course, he does Easy Rider, and then yep. he does the last movie, which that's a terrible movie. Let me go to the next page here because they have <laughs> okay. just a few. Richard Kelly would be on this list. They have him at number five. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, Orson Welles uh, had a sophomore slump, right? Now you're... I don't remember what his second film was. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting that wrong. Oh, Neil Blumkamp, District Nine to Elysium, which okay, I'll, I, I'll buy that. I kind of like Elysium. It's it's yeah. Spike Lee, you got she's got to have it to School Days. School Days is pretty bad. I, Even as a Spike Lee fan, I don't like School Days. You don't see that? That's another one. I I there there's some stuff in there I really like about School Days. Oh, and this is this is a good one. Uh, George A. Romero did Night of the Living Dead, and then he does There's Always Vanilla. Have you seen There's Always Vanilla? <laughs> no, I've heard about it, though. Mm, okay. So, you know, people just kind of put him on this list of sophomore slumps, and I know you wouldn't put him on there, but I, I would definitely. I think Donnie Darko is miles better than, than I, Southland. I, I don't disagree with you 100%. I, 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 but again, I think where this... 
Richard Kelly, even this year, is talking about going back to this property and expanding upon it. He always is going back to this, like always has ideas of going back to this property. And I get why. Like I don't, the universe that he has created, I don't hate. It's just everything about it is like, I, I just, it's so off-putting. Um, I think he really needs a really good editor and somebody to come in and help him um, maybe tear off some of the fat or, or kind of go through some sequences. Again, this Pulp Fiction, you can see where he was going for with some of the elements of Pulp Fiction, especially with um, the Amy Poehler stuff and uh, you know the, the ride-along and, and stuff like that. I, you, you do get that element of it. And I, I totally understand that, but I just feel like instead of expanding, he can expand the universe. I, I agree with you. I love the world that he's built in, but I want to see more of like, where does Sarah Michelle, Michelle Geller go? Um, where, where does the Sherry O'Terry's uh, character go? Um, you know, at, at the end of the film, you get John Larroquette and uh, is it Nora Dunn? They, they have this banter throughout the film that kind of works. And then they end up in a unique place at the end of the film. And that kind of stuff I think works in terms of these little vignettes of stories that are taking place within this entire world. And I want more of that stuff. But then, you know, I, I think you could do a great service in this film by taking all the Justin Timberlake stuff out. Yes. If you lost absolutely. all of the Justin Timberlake stuff, I think this is a much better film. So the, Dwayne, the rock Johnson, I think his story is interesting. I just don't think he's the right person for this film. Yes, I would agree. And there's that weird part on the beach. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, but again, I, I, I was really excited to talk about this because I, I actually, you kind of surprised me because I thought this was going to be one of those where, you didn't like it and oh you, you like this aspects of it you like the Philip K Dick stuff you you really didn't care for this but i was shocked uh to all week when you were just like f this film no way i hate you troy we're ending the podcast i i was like wow wow so i i was really excited to talk this evening because i that's the that's the kind of um I don't know, commentary. I like to engage with people. And again, I, I think you and I do a pretty good job of it. it's not like, oh, you're dumb because you didn't get this or you're stupid for not liking this. It's more of a, hey, I want to I want to understand it because I I agree with your view because it's your view and it's <laughs> it's your taste and and it's how you're kind of interpreting the messaging, et cetera. And it's not gonna be a hundred percent. I mean, how boring would this thing be of us talking for like an hour and a half and stuff and we're like Hey, remember that part? That was really cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that was yeah. cool. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, after talking to you for the last 45 minutes about it, like I've maybe walked off the edge a little bit. I still hate this movie, but I can I appreciate that you kind of absorbed what it was trying to do. And I respect I'm gonna probably go online and see a bunch of people say, you know this and that about this movie and that you're dumb because you don't like it. It's saying all this smart stuff. It's just a smart movie. You just can't get it. Blah, blah, blah. But I know I respect you and I know that that's not you. And so if you can appreciate it for what it is, then I respect that. But to me, again, it's just so impenetrable. And I think my most underlying problem with the film 
is his shotgun approach to like the themes. I, you know, I really think if you want to say something poignant, it's better to focus on two or three as opposed to 15 to 20. Well, and I agree with you. And there's too many characters in this movie. (laughs) Well, I, I don't know if there's too many characters. I think they've got a couple of characters that just aren't interesting. Again, that Justin Timberlake character, I don't care about that character whatsoever. And if you lose him, it doesn't, for me, impact the enjoyment of the film. Like I can't think of one thing outside of that dream sequence, but I would forego the dream sequence with that song for the integrity of everything else that's within the film. Uh, And I'm cool with that. Yeah. And I I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to rehash everything we said, but you know, I, I kind of like Wallace Shawn. Like I like Wallace Shawn and he should have said inconceivable at some point in time in the show. He, <laughs> he says something close to it. And I was like, come on, you got to say inconceivable. He's but anyway, there, yeah. anyway, let's just, let's just do the question. All right. Well, um, 2006, 2007, depending on, I don't know what metric you're using. Southland tales comes out. It does not wow the world at all. Uh, Brad, I'm going to ask you the question is, is Southland tales a bomb? It is a bomb. It is a huge bomb. This movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the film's not a bomb for me, obviously. So we're, we're very divisive on this one or divisive, Uh, divisive, either either one, (laughs) depending on how you want to do it. We can't even agree on that. (laughs) No. And I'll say this, but you, this is a film I don't recommend to just anybody like you have to like this type of narrative and you would, even if you like this type of narrative, you might not like it. Yeah, true. I'll give you that. I, I think you would really need to enjoy what I would call, cause we keep talking about Philip K. Dick. I think there is a difference between unfiltered Philip K. Dick versus a Hollywood version of Philip K. Dick. Absolutely. And yes. so if you go, well, I really like Philip K. Dick and you go, well, really, what are your sources? Well, I love Blade Runner and I love that Screamers film and I love the Adjustment Bureau. And, you know, we don't talk about the Divine Invasion or, or Val. And no, nah, I don't know what that stuff is. It's like, well, you, you should stay away from this film. <laughs> yeah, it's got that Hollywood. It's got that polish over a lot of his stuff that's, you know, a good one over. Get the ideas and stuff. It kind of leave out some of the other weird stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. And and again, I, I think this movie does a really fantastic job of capturing the style of that type of Philip K. Dick fiction. And and that's what I like about it. And I like the the crime story element into it. And I love the social satire. There's there I laughed a lot during this film, which kind of surprised me. But again, it's not a film I would run out there and say, hey, do you like that you should you know, you should go watch Southland Tales. Again, my litmus test would be go back and read the description like what we started and say, hey, let me tell you what Vallis is about. Let me tell you what Flow My Tears, the policeman said is about. Do those stories interest you or is that just too convoluted or you go too dense? If if you go, nope, not for me, man, stay far away from Southland Tales. But I really uh, enjoyed, I this has been one of my, to be quite honest, this has been one of my favorite conversations we've had. I thought of a movie, by the way. What's that? <laughs> Gone, Gone with the Wind. I've never seen Gone with the Wind. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, there you go. I got Dr. Strange Love. You got Gone with the Wind. Do you own okay. it? I, I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, man. I've, Which is like, it's in, like, I own, we're, we're going to have disagreements on here. I own about 10 to 15 movies that I own that I've never seen, that I haven't watched yet. Yeah. I know yeah, you've I got, got a problem. Yeah. 
No, and I get it. I get it. And even this week, it, I was getting questioned like, is that another box? I'm like, yeah, but somebody was having a sale and I had to get it. And uh, can can we uh, plug something real quick? So our, our good friend, Sammy, when when we were talking, told us about this application called Cheap Charts. So <laughs> this I, application, I love it, yeah. Dad. I, I have a problem, an app. I, I have a problem already with buying too much physical media. And here comes our good friend that says, oh, by the way, look, you download this app. Did I use the right terminology? Good job. From iTunes called Cheap Charts. And what it ends up doing is you mark a film, TV, whatever, and it tells you everything that's on sale from every streaming service. And then it'll even give you a track record. So it'll say it's on sale now for like $9.99. But a few months ago, it was on sale for four ninety nine. So you can create a wish list and and track it. And Tuesday, I think, is the big day where it'll just dump about two hundred and fifty films. And I'm telling you, when you get to that price point of about four ninety nine, yeah, four ninety nine is immaterial. I'm sitting there clicking things uh, left and, and right. Ten, and you're like, oh, yeah. And and for me, who loves film from other countries they have a bunch of Chinese films that pop up that I've never heard of for a dollar 99. And I'm like, well, I got to buy all those. So a lot, a lot of good dramas and comedies, but Hey, they folks. have the Blu-ray edition of kid with the golden arms, which is one of my favorite Shaw brothers films. It was like six 99. I was like, okay, I own it, but I can watch it without having to put anything in. So yeah, there you go. And the like, arrow will have a sale on there yeah. and a lot of two ninety nine stuff. So it doesn't have the special features, but it's the film only. But listen, film fans, if if you love your stuff digital, if um you're not like a physical collector like myself or even Brad, and and you're looking for a way to track all of that, then our good friend Sammy recommends cheap charts. And I'm I'm telling you, the minute you put it on your phone, uh make sure you know you have a limit on your bank account because that thing will drain it. <laughs> Uh, so next week. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what we're going to watch next week. Cause next week's your pick. It is, it is episode 49. So I will say Troy and I are doing a big movie for 50. I won't say it yet. And episode 52 will be our, uh, one year anniversary, which we will do some cool stuff with that. I am working a lot in Excel Troy to kind of have some cool numbers for us. Nice. After our first year. Um, I will tell you that I registered the domain for our podcast on May 15th. So it's coming up on one year on that. Um, so we have, you know, been doing this for almost a year now. Um, but for episode 49, we are doing the 1992 action film starring Pierce Brosnan. It is called Live Wire. I'm, now, so, I'm curious, Brad. You had talked about this a few months ago. And I totally forgot I owned it on DVD. Yes, but you do. You, where where did this one come from? Okay, so <clears throat> Pierce Bosman was the first Bond that I remember seeing his films in the theater. Okay. Um, GoldenEye, you know, World is Not Enough, whatever. Um, so I'm looking at this James Bond guy, and I'm like, I want to see more. Oh, cool. You know, Miss Doubtfire, blah, blah, blah. Then I see this movie I've never heard of called Livewire. And I hunt it down, and I won't say anything else. But yes, I, I okay. I, it, it, I worked backwards from James Bond. I was wondering where the connection came from because this, I mean, something like Southland Tales obviously is a notorious bomb. And again, one of the things I like about is we sort of litter this show with the I don't know the movies that probably people have seen, 
or they know about. And Livewire, I'm I'm really would be surprised if any of our listeners even knew that it existed. So this will be so a- it was supposed to be a theater release, but it's actually a I think this might be our first TV movie. Oh wow! I don't think it was actually ever released in a theater. So oh, cool. This will be a, a good backstory to it. Yeah, yeah. So, Brad, if somebody wants to pick Team Brad or Team Troy <laughs> on Southland Tales, we might have to get some T-shirts or something made up. But uh, if they want to share their views on this, I don't know, epic science fiction, dystopian, film noir, whatever, or maybe recommend something as equally bomby as Southland Tales, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that is not a bomb pod at gmail.com. I will say, because you and I like to get things physically and watch them, we are actually scheduled out until October. But if anyone wants to, you know, add to our list that we have kind of growing in the background, um, please go ahead and do that. Also, if you have a question for us for our one year show, um, we'll do some questions and answers for that one. Um, you know, we're going to have a celebration because I think like you and I set out to do this and never really sort of said, Hey, how long do you want to do this? We just want to keep doing it. It was a COVID Um, project. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately we're still kind of under the gaze of COVID, but you know, this has been one of the nice things that have come out of that. And I feel like we should not be ashamed to celebrate a year of doing something. You and I release an episode every week, uh, 99 out of a hundred times we release it on Tuesday. So it's like, you know, I, I want to celebrate something that we've done Yes, and the audience that we've built. Like I was showing you some stuff, you know, and kind I don't of blowing call, your mind. I don't want to call it our audience. I want to call it our, our friends. So yeah, we have friends, a lot yes. of friends yeah. out there. Yeah. And- yeah. Our friends, um, so yeah, I feel like kind of celebrating what we put together in the last year. And so if you have a comment or something that you want to send us, um, you have a few weeks before we record that one. Um, that's not a bomb pod at gmo.com. Again, we're on social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, those friends are growing as well. Um, so yeah, I've been kind of super hyped about this because of kind of the the speed that it's kind of gaining and speaking of speed, I got that speed on 4k. That's pretty awesome. So, Oh yeah. I bought that's that. That's an too. awesome movie. It is um, real quick too. If you head over to our website, we've got friends with Cinefits. They just released an episode and it concentrates on, I think it was Lovecraftian horror. It's uh-huh. a really, really good episode. So they're not doing things weekly anymore. They've kind of gone to um, well, I, it's sort of a time schedule a where, it, is it monthly? I mean, I, I yeah. think what they're trying to do is, you know, pick a topic, go and watch a handful of movies and have it under one umbrella. But that Lovecraft one was really good. Our good friends at VHS Files just did the Robocop one. It is so much fun. I, I'm going to go back and watch that one. And of course, um, check out Sammy and the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. This week they did Top Secret, which is one of my favorite Val Kilmer films. So I'm, I'll start listening to that uh, tomorrow. Um, what else, man? I feel like no, I, you know, I actually appreciate our conversation on Southland Tales. I know my text messages this week were a little bit uh, off-putting in a way, but I didn't want to come on and just start saying this film sucks, blah, blah, blah. I really wanted to try to articulate why I didn't, because it's a little baffling to me as well, why I 
hate it so much. So, well, I really, I think it's funny that I don't, I can't still wrap my head around why you don't like it and that you can't wrap your head around why I do like it. Like that's one of my, that's one of my favorite things about this because this is the type of film that we will probably go back to and will be a reference point of, well, I know why you don't like this because you obviously don't like Southland tales or something of that nature. So, I mean, part, part of this is, um, I don't know, just trying to, to figure each other out in terms of movie tastes and, and uh, that's a lot of fun. As long as we've known each other, I think uh, what I like about it is we we still surprise each other. Yeah, and I appreciate you talking to me every week. You know, I can't forget that. Oh yeah, this is you're a great host. Uh, you're a great host, Brad. Oh, uh, and happy Mother's Day to your beautiful wife and to mine as well. Yes, and all the mothers happy out there. Mother's Day to all the moms. Uh, I, you know, again, I, I kind of always end. I don't know what time of day you're listening to this, but man, I'm, I'm hoping you're having just an awesome day. Thank you for listening. And we will catch you next week when we talk about Livewire. Stigmata. You're not going to do thank you. I have a nice day. Thank you. Have a nice day. All right, there we go.